This is They Create Worlds, episode 177, The Intellivision, part one. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. I haven't had enough to drink yet because... This episode goes out before midnight, technically, in the United States, <laughs> but I will soon. My wife will insist on it. Before we begin that horrible road into disaster, we want to see a different place go into disaster in television, which was great and wonderful and cool, but it had issues. That's right. So as we teased last time, as we usually do... This episode is going to be dedicated to a little system called the Mattel in Television. This is actually a very important episode in a lot of ways for us. I mean, the topic's interesting because all our topics are interesting. But this is a topic we've kind of covered before. We did a Mattel Electronics episode, and this is a topic that is in my book because the book goes up to 1981 and the Intellivision launched before then. But in both cases, there were some gaps in my knowledge and some gaps in my research that have more recently been filled in by myself and others, particularly for the Mattel Electronics episode, because, oh boy, did we do that one a long time ago. It was like episode 25, something like that. It is episode 25. Sometime long ago, let's say there's 24, I believe that would be near the beginning of our second year of the podcast. It looks like it was the September 1st, 2016 episode. So 25th episode. So it, it was right at the start of the second year of the podcast, because of course we do uh, 24 a year, twice a month. Somehow. <laughs> Somehow. So yes, that was a long time ago, very early in the podcast. My knowledge of video game history, our knowledge of video game history has only grown since then. And the sophistication of our episodes have only grown since then as well, as we've really kind of figured out our pattern and our little niche in doing these deep dives into specific topics while trying to place them in the context of their times and, and the larger history of video games, the entertainment industry, very occasionally society, though we're not social historians generally. We're in a very different place now than we were then in a lot of ways, and that episode really doesn't hold up in the same way anymore. Now, we don't like to repeat ourselves. We don't do, like, special edition replacement episodes, so this isn't the one where we do Mattel Electronics all over again, except we're carrying walkie-talkies instead of shotguns. It's not like that. But what we will do is kind of do a deep-dive focus on the Intellivision itself rather than Mattel Electronics more generally. We'll have a lot of new information and even some more new information even than my book. I mean, the book, I was in a lot better place in 2019 than I was in 2016 on knowledge as well. But with the new research that's been going on in the academic community about the Intellivision, even since my book came out, we've got a lot greater clarity on exactly how the project started, where the ideas came from, how the system was launched, and why Mattel Electronics and the Intellivision ultimately failed during the time period of the great video game crash. Okay, well, we don't really need to go back into the history of Mattel, because we know that. It's Barbie. Barbie decided to make a video game. 
<laughs> Where do we want to really pick up this thread here? Do we want to start from a little bit before the inception of the Intellivision, a little bit after it launched? We'll do the whole history of it. The whole history of it is tied up in the whole history of Mattel Electronics, so we do have to talk about that a little bit. But yes, we absolutely won't go over the entire history of Mattel again. What we will do, though, is set the scene for when these ideas were first being considered in about 1975. As I believe we talked about in our Mattel Electronics episode, Mattel was kind of at a crossroads in the middle of the 70s, because throughout kind of the preceding half decade, from the late 1960s to the early 1970s, they had undergone a massive expansion. They had begun conglomerizing. This was still kind of the era when conglomerizing was very sexy, where you buy into businesses that are outside of your core business area, businesses that don't necessarily have synergies with each other. They're just businesses that you're buying so you can be in all sorts of different things. The way uh, stock market regulation and whatnot worked back then made this particularly appealing. Then there were changes in laws and regulations that made it less appealing. We're not here to do a history of conglomerates, but Mattel had bought into pet supplies, playground equipment, publishing, motion pictures. They bought the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, which in addition to the circus had already had also been building a theme park, Circus World in Florida, so they got into theme parks. They were getting into all of these other areas that they framed as being part of their core mission because they kind of broadened their core mission from just toys to all sorts of products for young people. Kids like and own pets. Kids play on playgrounds. Kids go to the circus and to theme parks. Unlike some conglomerates, they were trying to rationalize a little bit what they were doing, but they were still getting way outside their core competency, which was toys. They did this expansion because they were a public company, and the handlers who founded the company felt under extreme pressure to keep providing a great return on investment to the shareholders. They also started falsifying their earnings reports by booking orders as sales, which you're not allowed to do because the orders haven't been paid for yet, so you haven't actually sold anything yet. This is part of the reason why Atari went kaboom, because they weren't properly <laughs> accounting for sales and where the money was. <laughs> yes. In Atari's cases, there's not necessarily any evidence of illegality, but they were doing some crazy things in the way they were booking things. In Mattel's case, they were actually doing some illegal things. Executives in the company were. They went through a very painful period of losses for several years, as some of their expansion didn't work out, and then they also had this huge mess when their shenanigans came to light. There was an SEC investigation. There were shareholder lawsuits. It was a disaster. It could have been the end of the company, very realistically. It was the end of the handlers. The degree to which the handlers were complicit in some of the manipulation is an open subject. Ruth Handler herself claims that it was people beneath her in the organization that did this, and she herself was not aware of the financial manipulations, which could be true. I'm just saying it's murky. But the SEC did force the handlers out of the company. I mean, they were forced out. They were found by the SEC to, at the very least, you know, should have known what was going on. If they weren't complicit in it, they at least had gross incompetence. Exactly. So the handlers were forced out of the company. These were the founders of the company, the drivers of the company, particularly Ruth, who was more the business person. Elliot, her husband, was more the technical guy, and Ruth was the businesswoman. They were forced out of the company. The company was not doing well. They were in real crisis. So this caused a lot of soul-searching within the company, and it caused them to expand 
their executive base in new ways. Now, Mattel had always been a pioneer in the toy industry in being a really modern, up-to-date, well-run business. Ruth Handler was one of the pioneers of doing accurate forecasting in the toy industry, which the toy industry didn't really bother with before. She would actually hire people to go out and count inventory on the shelves, largely out-of-work teachers, apparently. This is according to Tom Kalinske, the later Sega president, but who was also, he got his start at Mattel. They were one of the first people to actually go out and count stuff on the shelves and see what was still on the shelves versus what had been ordered by a particular retailer in order to get a sense of what was moving and therefore do accurate forecasting of product. This was unheard of at the time in the toy industry. They were also very early into market research and focus groups. They were also incredibly early into having advanced R&D operations. I mean, obviously, all toys are designed. Toy companies have toy designers. They had a Blue Sky Research Department, which became known as the Preliminary Design Department, whose entire job was really just to play around and see what worked. There was no pressure within this group to bring toys immediately to market. They had other design teams responsible for that. This was really a Blue Sky Research Group. This Blue Sky Research Group hired several people that were adept with electronics, because electronic toys were starting to become more and more of a thing as the 1960s progressed. Now, we are talking about toys here. We're talking about toy cars or toy planes or or whatnot that have some simple electronic components, not necessarily fully electronic, but, you know, little electronic pieces to them. So there were design people within the preliminary design group that had some understanding of electronics. So that's one side of it. That's something that even existed before the handlers left. The other thing is after the handlers left, there was a new CEO of the company, Art Spear who was an MIT-educated engineer. He had come in to run operations for the company. He wasn't coming in to be the president and CEO, but as the scandal engulfed more and more of the company, he ended up in that position. One thing that Art Spear did, and Ray Wagner, who was the president of Mattel Toys underneath him, one thing that they really did in this time period when things were in crisis is they knew that to get back on their feet, they were going to have to push Mattel into areas that Mattel had not been in before. Obviously, Mattel was very, very successful in dolls. (laughs) They had Barbie. They had Hot Wheels, which had suffered a bit of a slump in the early 1970s, but was still a powerful brand in its own right. They were doing well in dolls, and they were doing well in, like, toy cars and that kind of thing. They didn't necessarily do as well in games. And obviously, we're not talking electronic games here. We're talking even, like, board games. There were areas they didn't do as well in. So they started bringing in new marketing executives from outside the toy industry that were experienced brand managers from other areas of business, people from food products especially, because food products is one of the areas that had really gotten good into brand management, which is the idea that you create these specific dedicated lines of things, and then you have people that are responsible for managing that brand end-to-end. You know, they oversee the R&D, they oversee the marketing, they oversee everything. This paradigm was created by Procter & Gamble, the Cincinnati conglomerate that really pioneered brand management. Because, of course, if you go into the grocery store or, you know, a pharmacy or whatever, you'd be like, there's no such thing as a Procter & Gamble consumer product. I don't see the name Procter & Gamble on anything. Yes, that's true. But what you do see is Tide detergent. You see Pampers diapers. You see Downy fabric softener. You see Bounty paper towels. You see Gillette razors. 
These are all Procter & Gamble products. Some of them are products that Procter & Gamble itself originated. Others of them used to be independent brands or companies, and then Procter & Gamble later bought them. Either way, they're the company that came up with this idea of brand management, where it's not so much the company that matters, it's the individual product line, and you put executives in charge of those product lines and have them grow those brands, and by growing your brands, you grow the company. That is admittedly a bit of a tangent, even for us here at They Create Worlds, but it is kind of important for understanding how Mattel Electronics grows because it becomes a brand of the company. There were a lot of people, they didn't hire P&G product managers specifically, but they hired in a lot of new executives that were involved in brand management across other industries. Their marching orders were to figure out ways to grow Mattel into spaces where Mattel is not already strong, is weaker, because we're in a bad place and we need to get out of it. It's several of those executives that will play critical roles in establishing Mattel Electronics in the Intellivision. The first one of these, of course, is Mike Katz, and we've talked about this before. Mike Katz was brought in as a manager for new products, new product marketing, and his marching orders specifically were to find areas where the company had not been strong previously and try to get them into those areas. And one area he was very focused on was games in general. So it was Mike Katz, according to Mike himself, who first had the idea, okay, this is 1975, calculators are getting big. People like playing around with calculators. Calculators are coming down in price. They're cheap, affordable products that everyone is starting to get. What if we created some kind of game that was calculator-like, that used an LED display, as most calculators did then? LCDs weren't really such a thing quite yet. Used LED lights and calculator-style buttons and calculator kind of form factor, except it's some kind of game. He brought that up at a brainstorming session with preliminary design people, this advanced R&D group at Mattel. Richard Chang, one of the main directors in preliminary design, said, yeah, we'll try to do that. I know I'm talking about the handheld products, but the interesting thing, and this is something we didn't really know the last time we did the Mattel Electronics episode, and it's not even something I really know when I did the book. This was the exact same time they started looking into the video game business as well. Even though they got into the handheld electronics first, releasing Football and Auto Race in 1977. From this very beginning, this 1975-76 time period, once they were put on this track of looking into electronic games, they end up looking into video games as well. Sort of like they got their foot in the door or dipped their toe into the pool, just to sort of like, yeah. okay, are electronic games viable? Let's try something simple. We'll try this handheld football thing. We'll try this handheld whatever. Okay, yeah, that seems to work. Let's do something a little more advanced and we'll start looking at video games. Exactly. And they really start looking at them, though, like even more so. I mean, you're right, but almost at exactly the same time, because what happens is they're starting to look into development systems for the handheld games. They're starting to look at the microprocessor field. They're starting to see what's out there in terms of not only stuff that they can put into their games, but stuff they can use for development systems for their games. One of the engineers in preliminary design by the name of Larry Sims realized that when they were starting to look at this stuff, you know, he'd seen Pong, the arcade game, the coin-op game. He started to think, well, you've got these blocks moving around in this Pong game. What if we created some kind of sports game that hooked into a television where you could have little football players or baseball players or cars or whatnot moving around the screen that are a little more sophisticated than this Pong thing? 
So he's starting to talk to people like Richard Chang and another engineer there, George Close, and the graphic designer on all of this, the artist on all of this, David James. He's starting to talk to some of these people about what if we took this in that direction as well. They're looking at what's out there in the microprocessor market. This is all 1975 and into 1976. At the same time, the microprocessor industry is trying to start courting some of these game companies. Because, you know, at this point, you've had the Home Pong thing happen. You have Magnavox out there with their new Odyssey systems, the Odyssey 100 and Odyssey 200, the dedicated Pong systems. You have Atari that's announced that they're going to be entering the market before the end of the year in 1975. You have this understanding amongst the chip companies, which at this time, we have to remember, are still trying to, in some ways, validate their existence. They're trying to find mass markets for their products, especially the guys that are getting into the low end of the chip market, who are making cheaper processors than an Intel or a Motorola and really want to find kind of mass market applications for these low-cost chips they're making. They're starting to try to get their way into the market at the same time. So at the same time that Mattel is starting to look into this whole electronic game thing, whether it be calculator games, video games, etc., Moss Technology, the company that has just pioneered the low-cost 6502 microprocessor, is looking to hook up with sophisticated companies of all types that may be interested in using their products. We don't know exactly when, but it was probably at the January 1976 CES where the Mattel people, where Chang and Close and James, probably first saw the 6502 microprocessor. Remember, at this point, in part because of what Katz had asked in the brainstorming session, they're starting to look at technology to do this whole electronic game thing. They meet representatives of Moss Technology at the January CES. Of course, they have their 6502, their low-cost chip, and they have a development system that they're putting together for that too, the Chem 1 board, which we've talked about. So they're interested in this, perhaps, for their games. And so they arrange with a Moss sales rep by the name of Mark Torfey to do a demonstration, an off-site demonstration in Redondo Beach, California, to talk about the application of microprocessors to video games. So, great! Mark Torfey's like, yes, this could be a great new resource for us to sell our chips. Huzzah! Just one problem. How do you use a microprocessor to make a video game? Because remember, we're at the beginning of all of this. This is new to everybody. I mean, this is right in the period of time when programmable systems are just becoming a thing. Fairchild is still a few months away from signing its licensing deal with Alpex to use their technology in the Channel F. Atari is just starting development of its video computer system, which will end up using a MOS technology chip. This is all new. It's not like MOS technology itself has something ready to go. Like in the case of companies like Fairchild and Atari, these were tech companies that didn't need MOS technology to show them how to do an electronic video game kind of thing. They were already working on that part. They were already figuring out that part. They just needed to know if the chip would have the specifications they needed in order to do what they wanted to do. Mattel, yes, people like Chang and Close know a little bit about electronics, but they're not video game engineers in the same sense. So they're looking for a a true demonstration. They want something thrown together. They don't just want the chip to plug it into what they're working on and see if it works together. They need a full-fledged demonstration of this to kind of get a feel for it. Torfe and the people at Moss don't really have anything on hand to be able to do that. 
This is where one of the other very, very important individuals in this entire story of the in television comes in, and that's a gentleman by the name of Glenn Hightower. Hightower was a graduate of Caltech, California Institute of Technology, a very well-regarded research institution, research university in Pasadena, California. So again, we didn't say this, but Mattel is in Southern California. Caltech is probably the premier technical school in California in Southern California, as opposed to Berkeley and, and Stanford and all of these Bay Area Silicon Valley schools. So we've got a connection there. Glenn Hightower is one of the first people that is really getting in good with this whole microprocessor thing. And in fact, he was teaching courses at Caltech on microprocessors, microprocessor design. In order to teach his course, he needed some cheap microprocessors for his students to be able to see. So he connected with Moss Technology to get processors. And Torfei, because he was the regional rep, Torfei had provided him some microprocessors and basically said, you know, in one day, and this day may never come, I may ask you to provide uh, me with a favor <laughs> as part of this. Now that Torfei had to do this demonstration, he called in this favor with Hightower and had Hightower put together a little demo system using a terminal and a monitor and some circuitry that would allow him to demonstrate what a video game using a MOS technology processor might look like. Just a really simple thing that could create little moving objects like ships or bullets or something to demonstrate to the uh, Mattel ex executives in early 1976. Now, the other thing that Glenn Hightower had going on at this time was a very interesting contracting firm by the name of APH, which he had founded with a fellow Caltech alum, John Denker, in 1975. What APH did is it was a subcontractor in the field of electronic design, which, you know, is a kind of standard thing. But what made them kind of stand out is what they would do is they would actually hire Caltech students because they were alumni. They had close ties with the university still. Caltech, very interestingly, has a house system, very similar to British universities like Oxford or Hogwarts, if you want to go, which has a house system, which is based on British house systems. They had a house system. So just like at Hogwarts, you're associating mostly with your Gryffindors or your Ravenclaws or whatever, you actually had a house that you were in at Caltech, which was very unusual for an American institution. But what it meant is you forged particularly close ties with those students that were in your house. Even after they graduated, Hightower and Dinker had a lot of close ties within the university. So what they did is they started hiring students to work for their firm, APH, which was named that because Caltech, they came out of applied physics. Caltech had a very fine applied physics department, so APH was applied physics, just shortened. Then they would connect the skills of these students with area companies that needed their expertise in electronics and work as a contractor on projects. Hightower does this demonstration, which gets them even more excited and starting thinking about video games, but it also introduces Mattel to this APH organization that can provide some of the expertise in electronics that Mattel itself doesn't have. Because even though they've done toys that have incorporated a small amount of electronic elements in them, most of their engineers that they have are mechanical. At this time, you did not need a lot of electronics expertise in a toy company to make toys. This was kind of a new area for them. So a couple of things come out of this meeting. First of all, at this very early date, there's a memo even in 1976 that David James wrote up, the artist behind all of this, that proposed two different types of games, video games using a microprocessor and calculator-type handheld games. 
This is research that only came to light more recently with some gentlemen that are in the process of writing an Intellivision book that will hopefully be published sometime in the next year or so. A couple of academics by the name of Tom Bolstorff and Braxton Soderman, who are doing some very interesting research into Intellivision. This memo exists all the way back in January 1976, even before the handhelds come out, which is something didn't realize until even after my book was published, they were already thinking about video games even before the handhelds. So that's the first thing. They've got this idea of video games percolating. The other thing is they're introduced to APH. And then when they realize they need some outside electronics expertise to help them get their handheld games to market, which we're not going to focus on because we are, this isn't a television episode. They hire APH to do some of that work with them, some of that consulting work with them. That's kind of where things stood at that very early point. Now, they quickly latched onto the handheld calculator-style games as their first method to go to market. They were easier to develop. They were more toy-like. Even though they're fully electronic, they feel more like a traditional toy in terms of size and price point and all of this than a video game system would. Upper management is a little leery about this whole electronic thing, and they're more comfortable with the idea of these handhelds. So they push the video game thing aside for the moment. They're not forgetting about it. But they push it aside for the moment and focus on these handheld electronics, which we talk about some in our Mattel Electronics episode. We won't talk about them again here. Once again, this new avenue of these electronic games, these handheld games, was being driven by this new group of executives. Mike Katz, according to him, was offered the opportunity to take control of this and declined. He wanted to stay within the toy part of the company. So it was another executive that was also charged with moving the company into new product areas that ended up taking control by the name of Ed Krakauer. He had joined in fall 1976, Mattel, again, part of this wave of new executives, as the VP of new business development. He came also out of the food products industry. He had been vice president of consumer products marketing for Hunt Wesson, the food products company. In February 1977, he became the first head of what became Mattel Electronics. At this point, Mattel Electronics was merely a marketing unit inside of Mattel Toys. They recognized that this was something distinct from what they were doing, and they wanted to put a new brand behind it. So they came up with the Mattel Electronics name, the Mattel Electronics labeling on their first handheld products, and Krakauer was running this group. But they remained within Mattel Toys, just to kind of get the corporate shenanigan things figured out, because this is always complicated. As I said, Mattel had diversified over time. So you had Mattel Inc. This was the original company. But, you know, they were in all these other areas. They'd bought Ringling Brothers. They'd bought Western Publishing. They were doing all of these other things. So Art Spear was in charge of Mattel, Inc. Mattel Toys was a subsidiary of Mattel, Inc. And this was headed by Ray Wagner, who ran all of their toy stuff. Mattel Toys was divided into two divisions, Mattel Toys USA and Mattel Toys International, the purposes of which I shouldn't have to explain. Mattel Electronics at this point is part of Mattel Toys, presumably Mattel Toys USA. Ed Krakauer is running the, the marketing of these things and is starting to figure out where they're going to go next. Meanwhile, the preliminary design group, which is also part of Mattel Toys, it's this advanced R&D group, is continuing to look into this whole video game thing. Because even though they've decided that they're going to do the electronic handhelds first, they have not given up on doing a video game. 
In April 1977, they hire a new individual by the name of David Chandler into the preliminary design group. This guy, Chandler, was specifically hired because of his knowledge of technology and of electronics. He has a Doctor of Science degree, so he's Dr. David Chandler, from the Carnegie Institute of Technology. Very fine Eastern school. It's Carnegie Mellon today because they merged with another institution to form Carnegie Mellon, but at this time they were still the Carnegie Institute of Technology. Very fine school in Pittsburgh. In electrical engineering, Doctor of Science in electrical engineering. So this guy really knows what he's doing. He had been working on guided missiles before this at North American Aviation. He worked on the guidance system of the Minuteman intercontinental ballistic missiles. This guy was way overqualified for working at a toy company, but that's Mattel for you, and that's important to Mattel. If Mattel's going to get into something, they're going to get into it in a sophisticated way. They're not just going to scrape the bottom of the barrel for anyone that they can happen to find. You know, they're going out and getting the best. And of course, at this time, there's no video game industry, right? I mean, there's barely a video game industry. Video game industry only started in 1971 with computer space. Or I should say, as we always do, the video game industries because there really wasn't one all-encompassing video game industry yet. So if you're getting the best of the best in electrical engineering to do your video games, you're not going to other companies to poach their video game designers, because there just aren't that many of them. So you have to go to places like defense contractors with David Chandler, or academic consultants like Glenn Hightower and his APH. That's where you go to get the top talent. You can't poach top video game talent that doesn't exist. So they bring in Dr. David Chandler in April 1977, and they put him in charge of continuing the explorations into doing a video game system, which the company is still very much interested in trying to do at this point. By 1977, video games are only getting more popular. The Home Pong thing had a great year in 1976. As we know, spoiler alert, 1977 won't be nearly as great, but 76 was on fire. It feels like the sky's the limit, and Mattel is still very interested in getting in, and they're excited at the idea of doing a programmable system. They don't want to be a Me Too following in this dedicated console market. They want to look into this microprocessor-based video game system, the kind of thing that Fairchild has already released by 1977, and Atari is just on the cusp of releasing. They'd release in August, September, and we're talking April here. They bring in Chandler, and he kind of takes charge of this. He starts evaluating several chipsets. Of course, they've been talking to Moss Technology some. The one that they're really interested in is one from National Semiconductor. National Semiconductor is making a really big push into the video game industry. They had done a Pong on a chip, and they were starting to push a programmable chipset as well. Because we have to remember, just to back up a bit, something about the, this entire home Pong market that is very important to keep in mind is that a lot of it was driven by toy companies and electronics importers. Companies that didn't have their own internal, for the most part, electronics expertise. So these companies were relying on chip companies, like National Semiconductor, like Moss Technology, not only to provide the processor that's at the heart of the system, they're largely relying on these companies to design the system. All of the electronics of the system are really being driven by the chip companies. And then what the consumer companies are doing are figuring out casings and control schemes and all of this other stuff. Now, there are exceptions. Obviously, Atari is doing its own chips in-house. They're creating their own Pong chips. 
But most of these companies are relying on outside design, and Mattel's doing the same. So National, they're going to National to see not just a microprocessor they can plug into something they have, but also, you know, an entire chipset that can be the basis for their video game system. They really like the National chipset. The problem with it is that it is very expensive, about $46. David Chandler, sadly, is, is no longer with us. He passed away. He was never really interviewed, but he had a lot of documents, and he actually made these available. Him and his family actually made these available on the internet. So we have some internal Mattel electronics documents from David Chandler that are out there on the internet. So that's how we know some of this stuff. So the national chipset was $46, uh, which, ugh, very expensive. So that wasn't great. Moss Technology had a chipset, but the problem with it is that it didn't at this point in time have sprites, what we would now call sprites. No one was calling it those then, but hardware-controlled independent moving objects. It had really nice backgrounds. It had no sprites. And for a home video game system, you need sprites. You need these tiny little clusters of pixels that you can move independently of the background, that you can move around without redrawing the whole screen. Otherwise, you can't make the thing work fast enough for the action games the kids want. The other contender was General Instrument, which is, of course, a company that we've talked about heavily with the Pong market because they were the primary drivers of the dedicated Pong console market, the Pong-on-a-chip business. General Instrument was being very aggressive by this point at expanding beyond just Pong chips. They made a whole string of dedicated chips that emulated different game types. They made a chip that did Tank. They made a chip that essentially did Seawolf and some of the popular submarine games. They did chips that did driving games. They were making all of these specialty chips that would still be dedicated consoles, but be dedicated to something other than just Pong. They were also working on complete chipsets for a microprocessor-driven video game system. Their chipset was a lot cheaper than National Set. It was only about $25, which was great. The bad thing is there was no graphics RAM. There was no graphics memory, which limited your capability to be able to do interesting custom graphics. That was kind of a problem. Clearly, National and General Instrument were the two primary contenders as far as Chandler was concerned. So they worked with both companies. They worked with National to see if National could create something that was a little cheaper, if they could streamline things again and get the cost down. And they started working with General Instrument to see if General Instrument could add some graphics RAM to their solution. They understood that that would raise the price a little bit, but basically they were looking at something in the middle between the General Instrument 25, no graphics RAM, the National, beautiful, but $46. And they were working with both companies to try to figure this out. By late August, again, this is according to Chandler's internal documents, so, I mean, this is straight from Mattel, this isn't speculation. By late August, they had managed to get National to simplify their chipset and get it down to $33. And they were able to get General Instrument to add some capabilities to their chipset to go to $30. You know, they got each of them to come up and meet in the middle, pretty much. They decided to go with National, because even though National was still slightly more expensive at this point, they felt it was the better chipset. That was great, but then the only problem was when they met with National in the fall of 1977, literally to finalize the deal, when they had a meeting with them, 
The market was very different at this point. It was becoming very clear that the 1977 market was not going to be the same market as the 1976 market had been for video games. National was really taking a beating because they got to market late. They had actually started on this video game thing probably even before GI did. But they had so many delays in getting their Pong on a chip ready that GI beat them to market and then, of course, took the lion's share of the business. So the whole market is starting to go soft. National, in particular, is suffering. As the document itself says, I'll just quote the document directly. Handshake meeting became scare Mattel into postponing project meeting. Basically, National Semiconductor said, no, it's all wrong. Get out. It's a trap. Don't do it. And Mattel was like, oh. National fell through. All work on video games was shut down. The handheld games were really, really taking off at this point. 77 was going to be a banner year, it turns out, for the handhelds, and 78 was going to be an even better year. I mean, the handheld thing is really taking off. This is the part of the business that Mattel's toy executives were more comfortable with anyway. Yeah, it was kind of like, let's knock off this video game nonsense. The people at Mattel Electronics were still very, very keen on trying to do this. And so they kept putting pressure on Ray Wagner, president of Mattel Toys, and upper management to try to keep this thing going. They were like, okay, so National's having a problem, fine. But the other company we're working with, General Instrument, they've got a pretty good chipset too, and their people are much more confident about the future state of this business. Ed Krakauer and another executive by the name of Jeffrey Rockless, whom Krakauer had hired into Mattel Toys in late 1976 as director for new business development, who again came out of the food industry. He had been a marketer for Aurora Products, which was a division of Nabisco. Krakauer and Rockless, who were kind of the primary people marketing the electronic handhelds, really continued to put the pressure on the upper executives to, no, keep this thing going. It's not all doom and gloom like National says. They commissioned a report from General Instrument on their system and on their outlook for the video game industry. The GI report, which came in at the very tail end of 1977, was much more positive on the future outlook of the industry, and Ray Wagner agreed to reconsider at that point and said, okay, fine, I guess they're more bullish on it, Go ahead, do this whole video game thing, I guess. Still not an area they're very comfortable in, and Ed Krakauer said that Art Spear, who was the head of all of Mattel, basically said, okay, if you want to do this video game thing, go and do it, but you're on your own. By which he meant that, you know, if it's successful, great, but if it's a failure, I don't have your back. You are making this decision, and I trust your judgment enough to let you go ahead with this, but you're going to get no support from corporate. <laughs> you're on your own out there. Pretty much, if you succeed, you'll come back as heroes. If you fail, we will disavow any knowledge. <laughs> You're black ops. <laughs> exactly. So to Spears' credit, he let them do it. But Krakauer definitely, yeah, I've interviewed him. So have the Intellivision book people. Krakauer was definitely a little nonplussed by the fact that <laughs> senior management really hedged their bets. But they did it. They decided to let them go on and do it. I don't want to get too far into the technical side of this at all. The heart of this Mattel system then, that was under development, didn't have a name yet, was going to be a chipset, as we said, from General Instrument. The two main chips that we're talking about here was a 16-bit microprocessor called the CP1610. 
and the Standard Television Interface Chip, or STIC, S-T-I-C, which was going to be the main graphics chip. Now, the CP1610 was a little weird. It was 16-bit, but the bus was only 10-bit. It was the first video game system to have a 16-bit processor, but it did not take full advantage of that 16-bit processor, because the bus was only 10 bits. So why bother? (laughs) I'm sure there are good technical reasons. There may be bad technical reasons, for all I know, too. I'm sure there are technical reasons why they decided to go that route. But yes, the graphics chip was really quite a step up. I mean, the processor, even with just a 10-bit bus, was very much a step up from some of the 8-bit stuff that, like, Atari was using. The stick was a real step up from the competition. Because we may recall the Atari VCS was capable of a very low-resolution background that was just very blocky and was essentially, I think, monochrome when you used it, you know, on the screen. And It was drawn in two halves, so the two halves of the screen either had to be identical to each other or mirror each other. Very low resolution, very inflexible, very clunky, because they were trying to save on cost. Then it had five sprites. Again, they didn't call them sprites back then, but it had five sprites that you could then use on the screen to move around. Well, the stick was capable of doing tiled backgrounds at a resolution of 159 by 96 which meant that each individual square of your graphics could be a different color, unlike the Atari VCS. Those backgrounds could be created out of one of 16 colors. So you could have much more colorful background graphics on an Intellivision and higher-resolution background graphics than you could on an Atari VCS. Then there were eight hardware sprites, which, again, they didn't call sprites. They called them movable objects or mobs, M-O-Bs because the term sprite had not been coined yet. They had eight sprites instead of five. There were also 512 bytes of graphics RAM, which allowed you to load your own graphics, custom-created graphics, into memory on the system. Remember, the Atari VCS only has 128 bytes total. And that's not just for graphics, that's for everything that the system's going to be doing. It didn't use a frame buffer. It basically did not put the graphics into memory for all intents and purposes. The Intellivision is going to have 512 bytes of graphics RAM specifically, in addition to 352 bytes of system RAM, and an additional 240 bytes of what they called scratchpad RAM that would be a temporary place to house calculations. So this system has a lot more RAM than the Atari VCS does, and it actually has video RAM, which the Atari VCS does not have. It has better background capabilities, and it has better sprite-generating capabilities. Most of this is coming from that stick in combination with the 16-bit microprocessor. This is all stuff being designed at General Instrument. A guy by the name of Stephen Main is the main architect of the stick. It also actually going to have a programmable sound generator that is capable of three-channel audio, which is a lot better than what the VCS has. So they're looking at a really kind of robust feature set for this system. At the same time, as GI is working on the hardware, it's going to be Mattel's responsibility to figure out software for the system. So they once again turn to the people at APH, the consulting company that they already had a relationship going all the way back to this first demonstration of the MOS technology system in early 1976. APH has been working on the handheld games, and so now APH is going to start working on software for this video game system. 
When I say software, I'm not just talking about the games, because another thing that they decide to do that was very unusual for the time is they actually created essentially a primitive operating system. They created an exec program for the system that was uh, resident in ROM memory and served as essentially, I mean, you know, I, I'm maybe butchering this slightly because I'm not a technical person, but it was essentially an applications programming interface for the system because the exec, as it turned out, took care of a lot of the basic functions of making a game work. That's very in line with what an API does and what uh -huh. an operating system will do. Exactly. It was created by an individual by the name of David Rolf, who had just joined APH. Before that, he had actually co-created an arcade video game by the name of Starfire that was kind of a minor hit in arcades in 1979. So he had an experience with putting graphics on the screen and moving graphics around the screen from a video game perspective. He created a series of routines within the exec that did basic object movement, did basic sound and music. It managed the loading graphics from RAM. So a lot of the very basic ways that a game software had to interact with the system were handled by the exec, which made it simpler in some ways for the programmer to make the game. Now, it also locks you in a little bit, right? It turns out one of the things that the Atari VCS is great for is its flexibility. Even though it's an incredibly primitive system, the fact that nothing is defined in the hardware means that if you're a really creative programmer, you can do anything you want in software within reason. It's still only a system with 128 bytes of RAM. At the end of the day, there's only so much you can do, but how you get there is entirely up to you. It's very similar to some of the more recent consoles. Think of the PlayStation and how it locks you into a certain way of doing things. And it was only by doing things outside of the API that they were able to make the PlayStation do things that it couldn't do. So that's very true. That was a very big deal with the PlayStation and with Crash Bandicoot, for instance. On the one hand, it makes it easier to work with the system and allows you to expend your effort on different things. On the other hand, it does lock you in so that you don't have as much leeway to kind of figure it out yourself. But still, the exec was a truly revolutionary kind of thing to have in a video game system at that time. And that was entirely the APH people and Rolf in particular. Could we say that that's the first time that's happened? I would think so. I'm hesitant to say that, but it would make sense. There were also some predefined character graphics in there as well which is something that the Odyssey 2 also did. So like if you just needed a basic running figure, for instance, a running man, you could pull that out of what already existed in memory. You didn't have to create your own on your cartridge. In fact, a running man was the very first demo that they did. Uh, David James put it together, the artist uh, who has been so instrumental in all of this for a while now, and then David Rolf programmed it up. That was the very first demo they showed when they first brought this whole thing to CES in June 1978. At that time, they were calling it the Mattel Electronics Cartridge Video Game. They hadn't decided on a name yet, so they just had that very generic term for it. It was very clear, you know, from the work that they were doing here, that they were going to have a system that was much more expensive than the Atari VCS, the Fairchild Channel F. There were other competitors on the market. They knew that they were also going to have a much more sophisticated system, but that's only going to get you so far when it's looking like you're going to have something that's going to cost somewhere around $200, $250 at retail, which is a lot of money. So according to our wonderful inflation calculator, that would be $1,142.68. Yeah. That's nuts. So it's incredibly expensive. 
They know they're going to have something expensive, but the opening that they see for this, we've talked about this in some of our other more general episodes, is by 1978, this idea of the home computer is starting to grab the imagination of the general public. The so-called Trinity was released in 1977, the Commodore PET, the TRS-80, and the Apple II had all come out that year. There was starting to be this growing idea that the home computer, the personal computer, really, more than the home computer, was the wave of the future. There was more and more this idea that this is the way work was going to be going. This is the way people's interaction with technology was going to be going, that children were going to need to know how these computer things work because they're going to be dominating their lives in the future. This whole idea is starting to take off, and the video game companies see this as an opportunity to position their video game systems as kind of trainers for this coming computer market. Your kids are going to need to know technology. Your kids are going to need to understand technology. The kids are going to need to know how to work with computers. But computers are these very big, scary, expensive things. $250 in television is expensive, but it's not a $1,200 Apple II. Think of an advanced, more expensive video game like our Mattel system, as a computer trainer. Your kids are going to be playing these games, but then they're also going to have the ability to learn how computers work. And to further this objective, we are going to release a computer keyboard add-on that will turn your Intellivision into a full-fledged computer. These two things together, even though it's pricey, will still be cheaper than buying an Apple II, even just a little bit cheaper than buying a TRS-80. It's kind of a, we have a better video game than the competition, and you can use it as a stepping stone for your kids to get into this whole computer thing. That's where they see themselves in the market. That's how they feel they can justify their price point. So they're hoping to get this out by the end of 1978. That's their goal. But the chip is taking longer to get together than they want. The stick is not coming together. So it becomes very clear it is not going to be out before the end of 78. So they have to push back the release of this thing to 1979. Meanwhile, there are other changes going on at the company. Because, like I said, 1977 was a good year for handhelds. 1978 was a great year for handhelds. Like, off the charts. And Mattel is still leading the way in this market. Electronics have become such a big part of Mattel Toys' bottom line that Mattel Electronics is actually split off into its own division of the company. So as I said before, Mattel Toys, subsidiary of Mattel Inc., was divided into Mattel Toys USA and Mattel Toys International, each of which had a president that reported in to Ray Wagner, president of Mattel Toys. In September 1978, Mattel Electronics is elevated to the divisional level, which means it is on equal footing. There's now Mattel Toys USA, Mattel Toys International, and Mattel Electronics. Its own separate division, reporting directly into Ray Wagner. Ed Krakauer remains as the general manager. Jeff Rockless lobbies to be made the president. He really wants to be the president of the company. He's sadly passed. I've never interviewed him. People who remember him remember him that he was very much a hard charger. He was very ambitious, very career-driven. At this time, he basically said to Krakauer, it's like, look, we've been marketing these Mattel Electronics names together. I want to stay in this side of the business, but I'm only staying on this side of the business if you make me president of the division. Krakauer didn't care about titles, so he said, sure, fine. Jeff Rockless becomes the president of Mattel Electronics, Ed Krakauer becomes the general manager, and they continue to run this business as they had before, but now with kind of an elevated standing within the organization. 
December 1978, we'll kind of go through a brief timeline here. You know, obviously they're not made, they haven't made it for 1978, but they start to get their plans more concrete. They say that they're planning to retail the console for $230 and that they would have a keyboard add-on that would turn the system into an entry-level computer for about another $270 so that the entire package would cost $500. So a little over $2,000 for the whole thing. (laughs) Yes, but still cheaper, way cheaper than Apple II and even a little cheaper than a TRS-80. So they're trying to present themselves as the budget option in home computing while also being a really great game console, too. Once again, they're planning to launch. They hope to launch in the second quarter of 1979 at this point, but the chips are still coming together. The stick, as well as the RAM chips, are still coming together. So it keeps getting pushed back because it's a complicated product, and it's just taking a lot of time. They unveil it at the January 1979 CES, By that time, it was being known as the Intellivision, and the name came out of brainstorming sessions that they had. They were trying to figure out what to name it, and they got to the name by combining intelligent television. The idea that you're not just passively watching a program that's being broadcast into your television, but that something is actually happening directly on your television, where, you know, what you do is directly impacting what's going on on the screen. It was a brainstorming session. Don't know who exactly came up with it, but Intelligent television in television. Once again, they're not able to meet that second quarter 1979. They have to push it back again. They unveil it at the January CES. The June CES, they announced that it's actually going to have to be $250. They'd been hoping to retail for $230. Now they're saying $250. It's also when they officially announced the manufacturer of the device. Because the other thing is that Mattel doesn't have any experience designing this stuff, which is why they have GI doing the hardware, APH doing the software. They also have no experience manufacturing this stuff. Mattel has always been a company that did its own manufacturing. They did not rely on contract manufacturers. In fact, they did do their own manufacturing on the handhelds. This was another level of sophistication beyond that, and they wanted to go with a manufacturer that already knew what they were doing with making these advanced video game components, which is probably a smart thing, because, for instance, when Bally entered the market with its Bally Professional Arcade, it was a disaster. The manufacturing was terrible because they were trying to build up their own manufacturing, and they had no idea what they were doing. So probably a smart idea to go out and get a contract manufacturer. Interestingly, the first manufacturer that they were going to go with, which they started talking to in 1977, was Magnavox creators of the Magnavox Odyssey, who already had video game systems on the market. So that's very interesting. We don't have a lot of detail about this, unfortunately, on the Magnavox side. We have no detail. But there was a brief period of time in 1977 where the Magnavox Odyssey 2 project was almost canceled internally at the company. I have to wonder, knowing that Magnavox was the initial manufacturing partner for the Intellivision, if whether they were thinking of canceling the Odyssey 2 because they thought it would be a safer bet to just go in on this Intellivision thing and stop doing their own internal video game development. But the Odyssey 2 project lurches on, and eventually Magnavox decides not to manufacture the Intellivision, presumably because they do decide to go all in on their Odyssey 2, and they can't be manufacturing a competitor's console when they're putting out their own console. After that, they approach a lot of companies, and they end up going with GTE Sylvania as their manufacturer. Big name in the television manufacturing business. 
So at the June CES, they announced that GT Sylvania will be manufacturing the system and will be releasing the system under its own name as well as under the Mattel name. That was one of the stipulations they had. They wanted to be able to release under their own name as well. At that time, they were hoping to start delivering the systems in August. Well, we know where this is going. It's going the same place this has always gone. Next, they delayed production to September 1979. Then in October, still no console, October, they said, okay, it's really, really ready this time, and bad news, guys, it's going to be $275. It's gone from $230 to $250 to $275. We're going to do test markets that are going to be starting any day now in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington, D.C. Well, in November, they had to announce again that that wasn't happening. (laughs) The chips are finally done. A lot of this was just getting those chips done. The chips are finally done, but they haven't been able to manufacture enough yet. Things with Sylvania have not been going well. The manufacturing has been difficult. They don't have enough systems to do this test market launch that they had been hoping to do. At that point, it's a little unclear exactly how the test market went. They did do a test market in 1979. Mattel itself did a test market in the city of Fresno, California, primarily through a local department store called Gottschalk's, but they also had them in the local Sears in Fresno and some of the other department stores in Fresno. You might think Fresno, that's kind of a weird place to just randomly have a test market. Though it actually wasn't all that random. Back in the day, when you did a test market, what you really wanted to do was choose a community that was large enough that you could sell through some systems there, but was still kind of isolated from the rest of the country because you really didn't want a lot of people coming in from out of town and buying into your test market because that wouldn't give you a true idea of, of how it's going to perform. If Because those people in a normal market would just buy it at their local stores, they wouldn't drive to your test market, so it's kind of distorting your data. So Fresno was actually a very common test market city in those days, because it was kind of isolated in Southern California there, closer to the mountains, but it still had a decent-sized population, so you could get a good read on it. For Mattel, it was good because it was one of the test market cities that was relatively close to their base of operations in the Los Angeles area. It's still a bit of a hike, but not as big a, a hike as going across the country. So they chose Fresno, they chose Gottschalk's. Gottschalk's was willing to work with them on inventory amounts because they basically told them, we can't guarantee you how much inventory we're going to be able to give you because we're having manufacturing problems and we just don't know what we're going to have. Gottschalk's was okay with that. That was one of the reasons they became the main partner. Apparently, Sylvania still got their system out a few other places. So they did the Fresno test market, but it was also available in limited quantities in other parts of the country. It did appear in the JCPenney's catalog, though I don't know if JCPenney's actually had it, because it's possible they made that catalog deal when they thought they were going to have more units, (laughs) and it could be that the catalog was printed and then they had to retract. So just because it was in the catalog doesn't mean that Penny's actually sold it, but maybe it was available nationally that way. Advertising Age reported that it was available in limited quantities outside of Fresno in that first year presumably. Those were the Sylvania-branded systems, though I don't know that for certain. Like I said, it's all very confused. We do know it was launched in very limited quantities. In my book, I had a rather large figure for that first-year test market of 50,000 units sold, which was probably not accurate. That came from a market research analyst, but it probably wasn't as many as that. We do have some internal, actual Mattel numbers now. Mattel itself reported internally, that they sold 1,900 units in that 1979 test. 
There may have been a few more units than that sold because it's possible that doesn't include like Sylvania's numbers because I think Sylvania did get some numbers out. But I don't think whatever Sylvania managed to sell probably pushed that up to 50,000. I think they probably sold way, way less than 50,000 units. It, it was a pretty small launch because it was basically just that one test market. They were working on a whole raft of games for the system. But for the test market, they were only able to get four games out in time. They had an educational game by the name of Math Fun. They had two casino games, Backgammon and Blackjack and Poker. Then they got one more proper action-y video game out by the name of Armor Battle. They had a ton of other games in development, but those are the only four they were able to get out for the test launch. In March, roughly March of 1980, as they started building up more of their inventory, they were able to start selling it in a few more markets. Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago. National advertising for the system began in May. National distribution of the system began in August. And by the fall of 1980, it was generally available across the country. Even though it was technically kind of released in 1979, it's really a 1980 system. They sold almost nothing in 1979. Keyboard expansion is still promised at some point in the future to turn it into a full-fledged computer, because that's what their focus is. All of their marketing is focusing on how the Intellivision is kind of a stepping stone to having a computer in the home. They're really focusing on the computer aspects of it. They're still working on this keyboard component, but just as the price of the hardware system had been continually rising, they had to do 230, then 250, then 270. They're having a lot of problem with that keyboard system too, and the costs on that are also continuing to rise. They did work on the keyboard throughout 1979, but it was so expensive, and they were really hesitant. Because, you know, as I said, they were planning to offer that for another $250, $275, you know, doubling the price of the system. It's kind of hard to justify an add-on like that, even though from a price perspective, I mean, having a cassette drive, having a keyboard, and it was going to have more memory as well. I mean, there were a lot of components in there. They weren't trying to rip people off. From a cost perspective, they were doing what they could. But it's hard to justify to the general public that an add-on is going to cost the same as the base thing that you bought, <laughs> you know? Certainly. That's a real hard sell. Imagine if you went to buy a PlayStation 5 and it could buy our $600 add-on peripheral to add extra PlayStation 5 capability and fun for you, the gamer. Most people are going to be like, N -n no. Yep. They had initially announced this would all be available together, and by December 1979, when they're in the middle of their test market for the base system, they have a working unit. They've been testing it for several months, and they had a working unit, but then they decided that they had to redo the internal architecture, presumably as they're continuing to try to keep costs and everything under control. They have to shelve it. It's going to be like a whole nother year before this thing is ready to go. Even though during this whole time, they're continuing to tout how this thing is going to be a great computer. The computer stuff is not going to be there. It's still in development. So that's the hardware side of things, but now we need to talk a little bit more about the introductory software for this system. Mattel, unlike, say, Atari, you know, they're not a coin-op company. They're not an electronic games company. They haven't been involved in this space, and they're really not that interested in 
going in that same direction. They're not going to the arcade for inspiration primarily. They see their system, this technologically superior system, being something that can play more technologically sophisticated and interesting games than anything else on the market. They need something that's going to make them stand out. So they're not looking to do a Pong game on the system like Atari does. They're really looking to do more sophisticated sports games primarily because they see a real hole in the market there. This is kind of more in line with what toy companies are kind of comfortable with anyway, because there have been various baseball and football toy games throughout time. So it just kind of makes sense. They can do better backgrounds. They can display more characters. So they really put an emphasis on sports games in their initial set of cartridges that are available by the end of 1980. They had the four games in 1979, which I think for the most part were just the games that were the simplest for them to get together. At this time, you always had to have educational games, so they had this math fun game. At the time, there was still this idea that video games were new. We have to justify them in a lot of different ways. And so one of the ways they tried to justify video games was, look, there's an educational component, too. They had the math fun game, which I'm sure was pretty easy to put together. Then they had their two casino games, Backgammon and Blackjack and Poker. I mean, Backgammon's a board game, but they were still kind of thinking of it as kind of a casino game kind of thing. And, of course, blackjack and poker, obviously. Casino games. Again, this was about the broad-based marketing that you tried to do with consoles at the time. The idea was you would have the action games that the kids want. You would have casino games and primitive board games and whatnot that were a little more slower-paced, in some cases a little more cerebral, and would be things that the adults would be more likely to play. Or maybe, in the case of a board game, maybe an adult and a child would play together something for everybody. And then you have your educational software to kind of justify to the parent the educational component. This idea that you're trying to be a little something for everybody and all of the systems at the time would release with, you know, these different categories of games. There would be board games and casino games and educational games and all of this from all of them. Armor Battle was their one kind of action game, but their entire purpose in this is they wanted to create something that felt a little more sophisticated than what, say, Atari was doing. So again, they were rejecting the straight action game kind of approach that Atari was doing. Armor Battle was their take on tank or on combat, if you want to talk about the console version of tank. It had a little more strategy to it. It wasn't just a straight action game because they took advantage of the fact that they could do more sophisticated background graphics to have these tank battles take place on these fully realized battlefield maps, complete with plains, forests, rivers, roads. So you had to take account of terrain in a way that you did not have to in tank or combat, which featured mazes you had to navigate, but did not feature different terrain types. And your movement speed was actually impacted. You moved slower in a forest than you did on a road. There's also like buildings and stuff there, too, to hide behind. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. It's not just a one-on-one battle, but you actually have multiple tanks on each side. Now, you could only control one at a time. But you had multiple tanks that you were controlling, so there was action involved in this game. But there was also more strategy involved in this game, and it was a little slower paced. Just kind of goes towards the idea of what Mattel is looking to accomplish that's perhaps a little different than what Atari or Fairchild are doing. So those are the first four games. Then throughout the course of 1980, the rest of their initial games 
slowly trickle out. Like I said, there are a lot of sports games. They do a football game, a basketball game, a baseball game, a hockey game, a soccer game, a tennis game, a skiing game, a golf game. They're hitting all of the sports because they really feel this is a place that they can distinguish themselves. They also release another casino game, Roulette, and they release a horse racing game, which is essentially kind of like being a casino game too, in a sense, you know, betting on horses. There's another educational game, Word Fun, to join Math Fun. Then there is a two more action strategy games, Sea Battle and Space Battle. Sea Battle is very similar in a lot of ways to the armor battle game in that there's action and strategy elements, except now you're navigating over a representation of kind of an Asian island archipelago kind of situation where you're navigating your ships around. You're in this kind of strategic phase where you're moving your fleets around this archipelago, and then when two fleets meet each other, you enter what's called the combat phase. The screen zooms in, and you take control of the respective flagships, and you're kind of doing a a one-on-one combat with each other, similar to a tank-like situation. Again, it's a very action-strategy kind of thing, very different from what Atari's doing, and taking advantage, once again, of the capability of the system to do far more sophisticated background graphics to portray these archipelagos and everything. Space Battle, their final of these three kind of more action-y or action-strategy games that are in the initial release, is sort of their answer to Star Raiders, essentially, or Starship. Again, it kind of, just like the other two, it kind of has this uh, strategic overview map where things are moving around. Then once you engage something, you turn into a first-person view, and it's kind of a target-shooting game. They're kind of primitive. They're not necessarily the most exciting combat games. They're trying. They're moving into that direction while also putting a huge emphasis on the sports and having the educational stuff, the casino stuff, the board game stuff along for the ride. The other thing they do that's very interesting that really isn't being done at this point is in order to boost the profile of these games, they actually get licenses. This is really kind of the very first time that licenses are widely used in the industry. So they don't have baseball. They have MLB baseball. They get a major league license. They don't have football. They have NFL football, NHL hockey. For their backgammon game, they even get this endorsement, this license from this really obscure minor backgammon association that really isn't important in any way, but they wanted to have a license. It's ABPA backgammon for this random association. Their casino games are not just poker and blackjack and roulette. They're Las Vegas poker and blackjack, Las Vegas roulette. Their educational games, Math Fun and Word Fun, are sponsored by The Electric Company, an educational television program on PBS at the time. I don't know exactly why they went the licensing route, but I think, again, their entire strategy was based on sophistication. They knew they were going to have something more expensive than the competition. So they wanted it to feel more sophisticated in every way that they could to their competition. And part of that sophistication was better graphics on the screen. Part of that sophistication was games featuring more depth, featuring more strategy. And then part of that sophistication was saying, these are the games the real people play, so to speak. I mean, you know, this is the official game of Major League Baseball. This is the official game of the NBA. Even though they weren't exclusive licenses, I'm just saying, we're not just here making our own little 
puny little video games on our own. We are collaborating, even though it was just a name. There was no real collaboration. But we are collaborating with the leading organizations in these fields. Why do this educational game over here put together by God knows who when you can have the electric company approved math fun and word fun game cartridges? It gives an air of legitimacy to it. Exactly. And an air of sophistication. They really do need to justify this higher price point. They see themselves as capturing a new segment of the market. They see themselves perhaps taking a slightly older teenage market. They see themselves perhaps even working their way a little bit into the adult market with some of these sports games and whatnot. They're trying to tap into markets that they don't feel their competition has already hit, and they're trying to tap into markets that they feel will allow them to justify their higher price, which is necessary to have the more sophisticated graphics and gameplay. So this kind of all rolls together. And then lurking in the background of all of this is this idea that, oh, by the way, computers are coming, they're going to be in the home, and we are your entree into this strange new world of computers. Learn about computers, learn how computers work while having a good time. Of course, with all of these sophisticated steps, their controller also has to be more sophisticated as well. You know, the Atari VCS, it comes with two controllers. It comes with a paddle controller to play Pong games, which is just spinning a dial around. And it comes with a joystick that is one joystick and one button. That kind of control is not going to be enough to do all of these things because you're controlling these multiple units, these multiple tanks, these multiple naval flotillas, multiple players in team sports like hockey and baseball, and football. So they have to come up with a controller as well that is a little more sophisticated. And they come up with something fairly interesting. The Intellivision controller consists of a series of numerical buttons that look like they came right off of like a phone or something that you can use to do various actions and various selections. Then instead of a joystick for movement, they have this disc that you can press down on it to provide sort of a precision of movement. Some people have discussed this as almost being analogous to a modern D-pad. You know, I guess in some ways it kind of is. It's, it's definitely a clunkier way of doing it than the D-pad is. But it is the idea that instead of using a joystick that you're moving around, you press on this circle in the direction you want to move in order to be able to do it. And it did allow for movement in 16 different directions, which is kind of interesting. Then there were also some side buttons as well that allow for differing functionality. Even though there were buttons on both sides of the controller, the buttons on each side were identical. They just put them on each side of the controller so that left-handed and right-handed players would both have a comfortable A and B button to use with their trigger finger. It has a lot of controls, which can be kind of complicated. And what they actually did is they actually created overlays for the system controller for individual games that would give shorthand shortcuts for which buttons were used for which functions in those particular games. Just like the Magnavox Odyssey, the original Odyssey shifted overlays for your television screen, and television games also shipped with overlays. But in this case, it wasn't overlays for your television screen, it was overlays for your controller, so that you would know at a glance what you were doing. Similar to the kind of overlays that some games have put out for time to time for use with like a computer keyboard, just giving you this real shorthand of, hey, this button does this, this button does that on this particular game. So that's the Intellivision. It's an expensive system. It's a complex system. It has games that are very different from the kinds of games that you're seeing on a Fairchild Channel F or an Atari VCS or even an Odyssey 2 in that there's less action, more strategy, and what action there is tends to be a little slower paced. 
it's a system that's a little bit out of time and out of place by the time it releases. In 1978, if that had all come out, that would be pretty revolutionary. That was the year when home computer fever was starting to manifest or personal computer fever was starting to manifest. That was a year when the games on Atari systems were really quite very primitive. That was a year when action games in the arcade were still not too impressive, so moving in a direction of doing these more interesting things like baseball and these strategic battles like armor battle, you know, would probably seem like a good idea. Even in 1979, that would probably be an okay way to go. But by 1980, when this thing is really launched nationally, we're in a completely different space. Space Invaders has happened in the arcade. Asteroids has happened in the arcade. Space Invaders has come home to the Atari VCS. The market has shifted definitively towards these action-packed games that are beginning to dominate the arcade and are beginning to come into the home. Mattel has not positioned themselves in that space. Their action games are pretty slow action games. They're not exciting like Space Invaders. The other thing is, this idea of video game systems being an entree into the home, it's kind of fallen off at this point. Bally tried that and was unsuccessful. APF tried that with their Imagination Machine and was unsuccessful. Instead, you had the Atari approach, which was Atari, after initially thinking that they would do kind of a more computer-like console, decided to just enter the computer business with their Atari 400 and 800 computers. When they initially conceived of them, the 400 was going to be the game system and the 800 was going to be the computer. And it was kind of the same idea of using this Atari, what became the Atari 400 game system as your entree into computers. Well, they just scrapped that and they went straight to the computer market. This idea of using a video game system as a trainer for a computer is no longer in the zeitgeist in the way it was just two years ago. These industries move so quickly. So all of their advertising is focused on, hey, look at this thing. It's so sophisticated and it can become a computer, which it turns out by 1980, nobody cares about. Their games are based on this very interesting idea they had of having more sophisticated products and more strategy-related products, which could have been a great way to distinguish themselves in 1978 or 1979. But by 1980, all everyone wants to play is Space Invaders, Asteroids. And of course, Defender and Pac-Man are just around the corner. So their game offerings are completely off base. Their marketing is completely off base. Their price point is very high. By the middle of 1980, this thing is starting to look like it's going to be an absolute disaster. That they may go the way of the Bally Professional Arcade. Or at their worst, be like the Odyssey 2, which kind of inches along, but never really does anything, never really excites anybody. However, as we know, of course, the Intellivision, even though it never becomes as big as the Atari VCS, I mean, not even close, is a beloved system today that was a humongous success for Mattel and Mattel Electronics and brought them great profits for several years until the video game crash kind of killed everything. In our second part of this look back at the Mattel Intellivision, we will take a look at the system from the end of 1980 through to 1983 and see how this system that was perceived almost universally as a failure by the middle of 1980 became a beloved and respected product over the next few years only to then crash spectacularly along with everything else. 
Certainly quite the system, not something that we or you and I really think of when we look back on video games, but really something that as I look at some of the graphics there, it's just sort of straddled that era graphics wise between the Atari and the Nintendo as far as graphics capability. Mm -hmm. When you look at any of these graphics, it's something that you can see from the early arcade where it can do things from early action arcade games, early arcade, whatever. Stuff that was coming out in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In that case, we will have to look at Intellivision in part two on January 15th. We shall see you next time on They Create World. And remember, kids, this year we hit 200. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's Video Game History blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. You can also help us out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Heck, you email me directly, I'll still give you stickers. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Please request stickers. I have too many of them. <laughs>